Hi, friends. Welcome back to Nate Talks to His Friends About Jesus. Dude, I hope you're good. I'm excited to talk about the Doctrine and Covenants with you today. This is good stuff. All right. So here's the context. One day in 1831, just while Joseph is working on the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible, he's living out at the John Johnson Farm in Hiram, Ohio. It's just south of Kirtland, remember? There's a group of people that come out to the farm to see if there's anything to this new faith that seems to be sweeping through northern Ohio. Well, one of the visitors is an experienced and talented Methodist preacher named Ezra Booth. Now, we've already talked about Ezra Booth and his bestie, Simon's writer, but just a little refresher. Ezra and his friends are sitting with Joseph in the Johnson sitting room talking about what the gospel of Jesus Christ looks like. At one point, the conversation turns to the subject of supernatural gifts, um, like the, the sort of gifts that apostles in the time of Jesus had. And here somebody says, here's Mrs. Johnson with a lame arm. Has God given any power to men now on earth to cure her? And a few minutes later, when the conversation had turned in another direction, Joseph Smith, not even drawing attention to himself, gets up, walks across the room, takes Mrs. Johnson, Elsa Johnson, by the hand and says in a solemn manner, Woman, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I command thee to be whole. And then he leaves the room. Mrs. Johnson at once lifts up her arm with ease. And on her return home, she's able to do her washing without difficulty or pain. Yeah, dude, this is awesome. This is just a straight up mic drop moment. Joseph walks up, cures her arm, walks out of the room. Boom. So Ezra is like, I'm all in. He's baptized, he's ordained, he's called on a mission. And just like you and me, he gets on his mission ready to take blind people to the movies and make the paralyzed dance, uh, all the while baptizing a steady stream of believers. But it turns out, I don't know if you knew this or not, the missionary work is hard. You walk a lot, teach a lot, and the vast majority of the people you talk with don't run to the baptismal font. I know, it's crazy. And usually, God doesn't give you lightning bolts on the daily to help people or to hinder people. Joseph says this way about Ezra's experience. He says, about this time, Ezra Booth came out as an apostate. He came into the church upon seeing a person healed of an infirmity of many years standing. He went up to Missouri as a companion of Elder Morley. But when he actually learned that faith, humility, patience, and tribulation go before blessing, and that God brings low before he exalts, that instead of the Savior granting him power to smite men and make them believe, as he said he wanted God to do in his own case, then he was disappointed. When he was disappointed by his own evil heart, he turned away and became an apostate, end quote. And you remember his bestie, Simon Ryder, the guy with a misspelled tombstone who leaves the church because his name is misspelled on a mission call? Well, Ezra and Simons, they join forces to help disabuse the world of the notion that Joseph is a prophet. And they, they start an extensive opposition mission to Joseph and the church. They preach far and wide against Joseph and the church, and they start publishing a series of nine letters in a newspaper called the Ohio Star, opposing Joseph and opposing the church. Booth's letters claimed that Joseph's revelations were false, 
that Zion in Missouri was a scam upon the gullible. And he, Booth also uses his publications to justify his own failure to follow through on the revelations Joseph received on his behalf. He claimed that Joseph was quite dictatorial and no prophet at all. Um, but what about that nagging miracle Ezra had witnessed? The fact that Elsa Johnson was healed could not be denied even by Ezra Booth, one of his most outspoken antagonists. So Ezra explained that Joseph Smith's approach had given Elsa Johnson a sudden mental and moral shock. <laughs> he says, I know not better how to explain the well-attested fact. This electrified the rheumatic arm and helped it move freely. Yeah, because rheumatic arthritis to the point that you can't move your arm anymore, it's basically like the hiccups. You just jump out and scare somebody and it goes away. Child, please. Nevertheless, Ezra and Simon's anti-campaign is gaining traction. And so it's in this context that God gives Joseph Doctrine and Covenants 71, which said, verse 1, Behold, thus saith the Lord unto you, my servants Joseph Smith Jr. and Sidney Rigdon, that the time has verily come, that it is necessary and expedient in me that you should open your mouths in proclaiming my gospel, the things of the kingdom expounding the mysteries thereof out of the scriptures according to that portion of the spirit and power which shall be given unto you even as I will. Verse 7, Wherefore, confound your enemies, call upon them to meet you both in public and in private, and inasmuch as you are faithful, their shame shall be made manifest. Wherefore, let them bring forth their strong reasons against the Lord. Verily, thus saith the Lord unto you, There is no weapon that is formed against you that shall prosper. And if any man lift his voice against you, you shall be confounded in mine own due time. This is interesting stuff. Let your enemies come in public and private with their strong reasons and confound them. This is not something we talk about frequently. But Joseph and Sidney did just that. In fact, they went to the same newspaper where Ezra had been running his mouth and they published a public challenge. It goes like this, December 15th, 1831, Ohio Star. To the public, the Lord willing, I will deliver a lecture on the Christian religion in the village of Ravenna on Sunday the 25th at the Brick Schoolhouse or the schoolhouse owned by Dr. DeWolf. I give notice to Ezra Booth, and Ezra Booth is in all caps here, that his attendance is desired, as I shall review the letters written by him and published in the Ohio Star, headed Mormonism, as those letters are an unfair and false representation on the subjects on which they treat. Should it not be convenient to review them on Sunday, I shall review them the day following, if a place can be provided for that purpose by the citizens of Ravenna or at any other time or place where it might be thought most convenient for all concerned, signed Sidney Rigdon. <laughs> Dude, he's like, wherever, whenever, come at me. And then he publishes another to Simon's writers, and both his names are spelled wrong here <laughs> in, in this public proclamation. Please tell me, Sidney Rigdon, that's impur on purpose. Anyways, to Simon's writer, it says, Sir... 
as you have publicly declared the Book of Mormon to be an imposition, and I, believing it otherwise at present, deeming it my privilege to know it as well as you, do hereby present and request to you to meet me in the township of Hiram, Portage County, at such a time and place as may, may be agreed upon hereafter, to investigate this subject before the public. That if I am deluded in receiving this book as a revelation from God, I may be corrected, and the public relieved from anxiety. Your acceptance or rejection of this request is desired through the medium of the Ohio Star, signed Sidney Rigdon. Dude, a week later, the editor of the Ohio Star, uh, Eber D. Howe, he frames the whole thing like Bruce Buffer at the beginning of a UFC title match. He's like, Sidney Rigdon, the vice regent and champion. Okay, that's about all Bruce Buffer I have. Of Joe Smith has thrown out a challenge. Okay, there's a little bit more in me. In the Ohio Star to both Mr. Booth and Deacon Ryder, who have renounced the Mormon faith to meet him in mortal combat of words on the subject of the gold Bible. Man, that's good stuff. All right. How does it go down? Well, any guesses? I'll tell you what happened. The cowards didn't show up. They run their, their mouths behind the paper, the written word in secret meetings. But Ezra Booth and Simon's writer are too chicken to actually show up and talk about this in public. Don't worry, we'll hear more from this toilet scum later. And trust me, I have reasons for this strong take beyond today's lesson. But that doesn't stop Joseph and Sidney from preaching powerfully for the next six weeks, counteracting the actions of Ezra and Simon's. Following the six-week mission, Sidney publishes a follow-up. And he doesn't mince words. January 12th, 1832, also in the Ohio Star. He says this, Having a few weeks since, through the medium of the Ohio Star, invited Simon's writer, again, he spells his name wrong, it's awesome, to meet me and investigate the divine authenticity of the Book of Mormon, with which he pretended to have an intimate acquaintance, and which he had pronounced an imposition, Willing to acknowledge every man to be honest and sincere till I have evidence to the contrary, so I was willing to receive Simon's writer in the character which he claimed. But how far myself or the public are bound to receive him as an honest man? I leave this letter written in reply to my request to testify. If Simon's writer is afraid to have his assertions put to the test, why make them? If he is certain, as he pretends that the Book of Mormon is a, quote, base imposition, end quote, why be afraid to come forward and prove it? I say, where is honesty? Where is candor? Surely not in the heart of such a man. Am I to blame for drawing this conclusion? Surely not, for he has forced it upon me. He presented himself before the public as an accuser. He has called upon before the same public to support his accusations and does he come forward and do it? Nay. But he seeks to hide himself behind a battery of reproach and abuse and low insu uh, insinuation. Just time out real quick. Dude, this, this is how people always do it. If they don't have a logical argument, well, then they straight turn to name calling, right? You're a bigot. You're a hater or whatever, right? If they don't actually have an argument, then they turn to abuse. He's like... I <laughs> 
He would fain make the public believe in meeting me to investigate the truth of his accusations that the evils of a Pandora's box would be poured out upon his head. The words of the Savior of the world are verified in this instance. He that doeth evil and hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be made manifest. Simon's, like the worker of iniquity, has sought a hiding place. Let the public remember when he goes forth again to proclaim his anathemas against the Book of Mormon, that he has been invited upon honorable principle to investigate its merits, the Book of Mormon's merits, and he dared not do it. This is a matter of his own bringing forth, like he's the one that brought it up. He is at liberty to believe as he pleases, and I am the last one that would treat him in an unbecoming on account of it. But Simons was not contented with this privilege. He sought to raise himself at the expense of others, as his conduct manifests to every man of candor. He stepped forward and made an attempt to go alone, and thought at the first step to put his heel upon his neighbor's neck. But I have seen proper to set him back again, and let him now seek someone to help him until he learns to ponder the path of his feet. He who is afraid to have his assertions put to the test, let him cease to make them. He who does not defend his charges, gratuitously made against his neighbor's religion, when called upon, will do well to set himself down in his own house and tell the people, if you will bring your preaching to my house, I will do it for you. I will investigate privately, but do not bring me before the public. So is Simon's conduct, and there I leave him for the present. Signed, Sidney Rigdon. <laughs> okay, so here's what I'm asking. The, this whole experience brings up the question, is it okay to defend the faith? Like, like sometimes we really question it. We're like, that seems like kind of a contentious thing. And, and it kind of grows out of this idea that meekness as a disciple of Jesus Christ is weakness. It, it means you just let people stomp all over you. That somehow being a follower of Jesus turns you into a doormat. If any of you believes this, if you believe that you cannot defend your faith, then you have not read the New Testament lately. Go back. Read the Gospels. Then if you're feeling strong, read Paul's letters. And your answer about defending the faith will be super clear. Go ahead. You can pause right now. I'll let you do it. All right. If you're not willing to pause and read all the Gospels in the New Testament letters real quick, I'll just let you in on the Cliff Notes version. Yes! Yes, you should defend the faith. Now, obviously, don't be a punk, but also don't be a coward. Far too frequently, we mask our fear, calling it kindness, when reality is just cowardice. Neil A. Maxwell says it this way. He says, Quoting, uh, he, he says, talking about a guy named Austin Ferrer. He said, Austin Ferrer wrote of the need for articulate Christians. He says, though argument does not create conviction, though argument does not create conviction, lack of argument destroys belief. What seems to be proved may not be embraced, but what no one shows the ability to defend is quickly abandoned. Rational argument does not create belief, but 
it maintains a climate in which belief may flourish. Now, I'm going to pause real quick and come back to Nile Maxwell in a second. Do you get catch what he's saying? He's saying, dude, rational argument is important. It may not convince somebody to believe, but what somebody, nobody shows a, a reasonableness for, what nobody shows an ability to defend, well, then nobody will believe in it anymore. That this rational argument, this basis in logic is important for people to be able to believe. Back to Neil A. Maxwell, he says, we can and should be articulate believers. There is a reason for developing not only commitment, but also capacity to spread and defend the faith. George MacDonald, another Christian thinker, he says, he warned that it is often incapacity for defending the faith they love, which turns men into persecutors. Apparently, the inability to defend the faith while under peer pressure may not only cost the soul of an uncertain onlooker, but the hesitant, inarticulate believer as well. End quote. That's the end from Neil A. Maxwell. He's saying it is important to understand why we do what we do, to be able to express it. Elder Holland says it this way. He says, we have always been at war with the adversary in our efforts to win the hearts of men and women. But now, more and more, partly because of technological access, we must be vigilant in the battle for the minds of the human family. We must be vigilant in this battle, end quote. D. Todd Christofferson, we need strong Christians who can make important things happen by their faith and who can defend the truth of Jesus Christ against moral relativism and militant atheism, end quote. We, we need people who can defend the faith of Jesus Christ. Boyd K. Packer, willingly defend the history of the church and do not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, end quote. Elder Cook, parents, Parents must have the courage to defend truth and bear powerful testimony. Your children need to know that you have faith in the Savior, that you love your Heavenly Father and sustain the leaders of the church. My hope is that no one will leave this conference without understanding the moral issues of our day that must be addressed in the family, end quote. So what I am saying is that it is essential that we are willing and able to defend the truth of Jesus Christ. So how do we do this? Well, first, the root of all our questions or or what we need to do is to root all of our questions in the context of what you know about God and what you understand about his plan. Far too frequently, we try to look at a question in isolation from the rest of what we know. Like we take a single question and we don't think about what we actually know about the character of God. We ask a question about a moral issue that is current today and we forget about what we know about our father, his loving son that condescended to save us and all of that. When we take a question out of context like this, it is like hair, like hair on your head and hair off your head. Hair separated from the head especially in my food. Oh, oh my gosh. I like, I'm, I'm, uh, even in my imagination, I'm going to be sick. I'm being serious right now. Uh, heebie-jeebies. 
but hair on your head is gorgeous. So you've got to look at questions within the context, like especially your hair. You're looking good today. So what I'm saying, number one, is ground your questions in an eternal perspective. Always say, okay, what do I know about Heavenly Father and what do I know about His plan? What do I know about Jesus Christ and what do I know about His love for me? That's your starting point. For all questions must be grounded in that. Second, learn something. Like actually have something to say. Start with the churchofjesuschrist.org and then examine the gospel topic essays you can find on there. Further, you might want to check out a section on answering doctrinal and historical and social questions that you can find on the seminary section of churchofjesuschrist.org. Like that will give you tons of good information on all sorts of current topics like polygamy, uh, homosexuality, just all sorts of things here, right? You may also want to check out uh, scottwoodward.org. He teaches up at BYU-Idaho and he is my mentor in all things church history. Much of what I share with you, I got from him first. Anyways, he's also the, the principal contributor of Doctrine and Covenant Central, which you for sure should check out along with Book of Mormon Central and their associated like Pearl of Great Price Central and Evidence Central type stuff. It's all really, really well researched, very well grounded, faithful stuff. This will probably give you more than enough. But if you want to get pretty academic, I found that a lot on Fair Mormon um, to be good. Not to mention the, the publications of BYU Religious Studies and the associated Maxwell Institute. They, they are all good stuff. So I'm saying have something to say. Like understand not only what you believe, but why you believe it. Because I'm here to tell you that there is much reason to believe. It doesn't mean that you're going to have every single question answered like you want it to be answered. But that's that like... I don't know. I, I, that's a six-year-old approach. My, my boy says this all the time. Can I do this? And we're like, no. And he says, but I want to do this. Like, like just thinking that everything is going to be how you want it to be is a really egocentric view of the, the world. Anyways, have something to say. Like it says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason for the, of the hope. Now, we've already talked about some rational evidences uh, in this podcast. Rational evidence in favor of the Book of Mormon. Rational evidence in favor of the resurrection. But let's just take a minute and expand on that. Most of the time today, you'll be giving reason for your belief, not necessarily to other Christians, but to those who have left religion. You'll be talking to secular humanists. So in your preparation, I cannot over-recommend two books by Pastor Timothy Keller. Like, I super recommend them is what I'm saying, if that's not clear. One is called Making Sense of God, and the other is called The Reason for God. Both are great preparations in your conversations with others. Anyway, as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we actually have some really robust doctrinal answers for some of the most common questions asked of religious people. Like you may want to spend some time seeing what we actually have to say about things. Like what do we have to say about why God allows suffering? We got some great answers there in Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, and in general conference talks. Do some research there. What do we have to say about the justice and redemption of sinners? Or, or to put it another way, how can a loving God send someone to hell? 
Well, check out what it says in Doctrine and Covenants section 76, and hint, he doesn't send them to hell permanently. The celestial kingdom is heaven, and we'll get into that later, but it, our doctrine is amazing on this. Or what do we say when somebody says, how can there just be one true religion? Well, hint, our, our work in the temple is pretty incredible at answering that question right there. But the, the biggest contention these days seems to be that there just can't be a God. That, that science precludes the idea of God. False. Not even close. Super bad crackpot academic approach to make that claim. First, the argument usually goes something like, prove to me that there is a God and then I'll believe. Okay, we'll look at some rational evidence for, for the existence of God in a minute. But the other side of the coin is prove God doesn't exist. Scientifically speaking, you can't even prove that God doesn't live in our own backyard in the Milky Way galaxy. You can't even, let alone proving that he doesn't live somewhere in the endless ex expanse of the known universe with billions of stars and planets. And we don't even know anything. You don't know snot about whether or not God's, God is there or not. Like your claims are completely faith-based there. Uh, you see, Keller says it this way. All varieties of secularism are sets of beliefs. They're not the absence of faith. Indeed, to say you must prove God to me is to choose and believe in a form of rationality that most philosophers today consider naive. Neither religion nor secularity can be demonstrably proven. They are systems of thinking and believing that need to be compared and contrasted to one another in order to determine which makes the most sense. And as far as which ones make the most sense, well, the arguments for God contend that a belief in God makes more rational sense to the world than the non-belief because it accounts for the data. Well, it accounts for what we see and what we know about the world, end quote. Dude, and let's just be clear about something. Science and religion are not mutually exclusive. Stop from both sides. Stop trying to make them prohibitive. Everything from the Big Bang to evolution are simply tools and methodologies. Nothing more. Stop freaking out about it. But let's say we do this. Let's say we trace everything back to the, the creation of this universe. We trace it back to a Big Bang. Then what? What started the Big Bang? Science is positively bereft to explain why it started. That's the most unscientific thing I've ever heard, to trace a chain of events without causality. Come on, man. Or just consider life. Keller again talks about it in these terms. In terms of probability, the chances that all the dials would be turned of life-permitting settings all at once are unimaginably small. Of all the possible arrangements and settings, there is only one in billions of trillions that could have produced life on the planet. The implications of this can be drawn out with an illustration. Imagine that a man is going before a firing squad. Ten crack marksmen fire at the doomed prisoner who is only ten feet away. Every one of them misses. Could that have happened by accident? It's possible that every one of them ten sneezed or coughed or was drunk that morning and so on that all of them missed. But it would be more reasonable to conclude that there was some conspiracy, something intended, something designed by someone. Like, I'm just telling you, the data points to God more than anything else. Uh, the only thing 
precluding this rational and reasonable conclusion is prejudices that we put against it. Additionally, consider the idea of moral realism. The idea that you have a deep sense within yourself that there are moral imperatives, meaning that there are things that or ways that people should act. Uh, like, you have really no rationale to force somebody to, to be- behave in a certain way if you don't believe in God. Uh, we'll talk about this in a future lesson. But the fact that you feel that there are ways that people should act is in fact evidence of a, of a higher power. Then you get the whole fact of human consciousness. There really is not a satisfactory explanation for it evolutionarily. It's very hard to explain how the ability to do complex mathematics and abstract philosophy (laughs) helped our ancestors survive. Uh, Additionally, there's this intrinsic aching that we, we feel for beauty and art that finds no real satisfactory message in science. Evolutionary naturalism does not appear to have a plausible explanation for how our aesthetic sense works. People have guesses, but they're really incomplete. Back to Keller. All these arguments and signs that we have been reviewing are not so strong as to force belief. That's kind of the same thing Neil A. Maxwell and Austin Fair would say. But they do make it completely rational to believe. In fact, these arguments... Are, are, in fact, these arguments are that it is more rational to take and takes less of a leap of faith to believe in God than it takes a leap of faith to not believe. If your premise is that there is no God, if the premise is that there is no God leads most naturally to conclusions you know are not true, that there is no moral obligation, that beauty and meaning and the significance of love and our consciousness of being a self are illusions, then why not change that assumption or premise? Ultimately, non-belief in God is an act of faith because there's no way to prove that the world and all that it is in it, within it and its deep mathematical orderliness and matter itself all simply exist on their own as brute facts with no source outside of themselves. If the theory that God exists leads us to expect what we find, whereas the belief that there is no God does not, why not move ahead, at least tentatively, by adopting a theory that there is a God? End quote. So take some time and have something to say. And know that there is reason to believe. And the more you dig in, the more you will find hope. So once you have something to say, and, and, and don't even for a second think that you're going to have all the answers. Faith is always going to be faith. But once you've had uh, paid the price, then act. God has made it clear back in John seven seventeen: if any man will do his will, he shall know the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. At some point, you are going to have to realize that the first principle of the gospel is faith and that faith is always going to be faith. It's always going to be a leap. It's always going to be trust. So jump. Dance. Wilford Anderson says it this way. He says, years ago, I listened to a radio interview of a young doctor who worked in a hospital in the Navajo Nation. 
He told of an experience he had one night when an old Native American man with long braided hair came into the emergency room. The young doctor took a clipboard, approached the man and said, how can I help you? The old man looked straight ahead and said nothing. The doctor, feeling somewhat impatient, tried again. I cannot help you if you don't speak to me, he said. Tell me why you have come to the hospital. The old man then looked at him and said, do you dance? As the young doctor pondered the strange question, it occurred to him that some to him that perhaps his patient was a tribal medicine man who, according to ancient tribal customs, sought to heal the sick through song and dance rather than through prescribing medicine. No, said the doctor. I don't dance. Do you dance? The old man nodded yes. Then the doctor asked, Could you teach me to dance? The old man's response has for many years caused me much reflection. I can teach you to dance, he said, but you have to hear the music. Sometimes in our homes, we successfully teach the dance steps, but we are not as successful in helping our family members hear the music. And as the old medicine man well knew, it is hard to dance without music. Dancing without music is awkward and unfulfilling, even embarrassing. Have you ever tried it? So how do we hear the music? First, we must keep our own lives attuned to this correct spiritual frequency. Back in the olden days before digital age, we found our favorite radio station by carefully tuning the radio dial until it lined up perfectly with the station's frequency. As we approached the number, we could hear only static but when we finally made the precise alignment, our favorite music could be heard clearly. In our lives, we have to align with the correct frequency in order to hear the music of the Spirit. End quote. You gotta hear the music. You gotta take that leap. In Doctrine and Covenants 75, several elders are asked to take that leap of faith and go preach the gospel. They're asked to dance. And they do. Lyman Johnson and Orson Pratt baptized 104 people, including future apostle Amasa Lyman, and they organize branches as they go. 22-year-old Orson Pratt raises an invalid woman of seven years from her bed. Orson Hyde and Samuel Smith serve one of the most arduous and toilsome missions ever performed in the church. They walk from Ohio to Maine and back over 1,300 miles, obeying Doctrine and Covenants 75, 18 through 20 with precision. Luke Johnson, Daniel Statton, Seymour Brunson baptized 53 people and organized them to a branch. That's power. Believe and then act on that belief. Dance. Get out there and say something. In October 2010, General Conference, Elder Nelson tells his own story about this. He says, Many years ago, two colleagues of mine, a nurse and a doctor husband, asked me why I lived the way I did. I answered, Because I know the Book of Mormon is true. And I let them borrow my copy of the book and invite, inviting them to read it. A week later, they returned the book to me with a polite, Thanks a lot. I responded, What do you mean, thanks a lot? That's a totally inappropriate response for one who has read this book. You didn't read it, did you? (laughs) Please take it back and read it. Then I would like my book back. And he says that because he's uh, serving in a military hospital and he only has one physical copy of the Book of Mormon um, as he's in this kind of isolated situation. Anyways, admitting that they had only turned its pages, they accepted my invitation. 
When they returned, they said tearfully, we have read the Book of Mormon. We know it's true. We want to know more. They learned more, and it was my privilege to baptize both of them. Years and years later, um, President Nelson told a follow-up to this story. He said he was at a state conference in Tennessee, filling in for Elder Neil A. Maxwell, and he saw a woman on the left side of the chapel and asked the stake president who she was. The stake president found out her name and said, I don't know if you should call on her. But as he's giving his final address, he, he said he had the prompting, and so he called her up. And he said, how long have you been a member of the church? She said, 30 years. Who baptized you? You did. <laughs> now, the, the reason he didn't uh, recognize her name is that, that her husband, the doctor, had passed away, and uh, she had remarried, and her name had changed, right? Um. But as they have this public conversation, he, he, he asks her how many people had come into the church through connections to her and her husband. And he said, she said the number was 80. And President Nelson said, that's a pretty good harvest for a surgeon who said, you didn't read a book, did you? Uh, that was in 1984, right? And then Christmas of 2010, Elder Nelson received a letter which attached 50 more pages of personal testimonies of people who came into the church because of her. And the number of converts now is at 309. They go out and dance. Open your mouth! Be a strong and of good courage and let God fill you up with love. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.